2: and I'm Eliana Johnson.
1: And this is Inkstained Wretches where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right in the American news media. Eliana Johnson. Good news this week it is an Inkstained Wretches interview episode. And it's not just an Inkstained Wretches interview episode. It is with a true fellow wretch, a true one of us indeed who has done all this at a very high level. It's Andrew Sullivan, who I think we can say has almost Zelig-like, danced through the different eras of late 20th and early 21st century news business. Welcome, Andrew Sullivan. I am incredibly psyched to be here, Chris.
0: And Eliana, nice to meet you.
2: (laughs) You too. Yes, Andrew, I just listened to your interview with Ben Smith, and that was quite a romp through events that that I lived through. But You've you've been there and seen really seen the transformation of media, which I know we'll get to and talk to you about, Chris. I know I know you wanted to give Andrew a taste of his own medicine.
1: That's absolutely right. We should say that we should get some of the plugging done at the beginning, which is if you're not a subscriber to the Weekly Dish, if you don't listen to the Weekly Dish podcast, you are missing out. It is a, you are impoverished in both your knowledge and entertainment. And Andrew has a a storied history in the news biz, but I'm going to do to you what I assume everybody does to you when you go on to other shows, which is turn the tables on you and ask what you ask, which is, tell us about yourself. Tell us where you grew up. What was that like? I
0: grew up in a small town of around 20,000 people in the bosom of Sussex, England. Very rural. I lived on the outskirts of the town. The the road ended in a field and woodlands and I spent a large amount of my time as a kid either buried in books or out in the in the countryside around there, which is among the most beautiful spots in England. It's where actually Hundred Acre Wood was based, oh, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. Christopher so Robin. Yes. Yes, you can actually if you go to the enchanted place at the top of the forest, if you remember Winnie the Pooh. And you look around, you will see the church spire of my little town. So I grew up in an idyllic
1: little rural. What's the American place place that you have found has the strong, one of the American places that has strong echoes of the kind of place in terms of its proximity to big cities, in terms of its, all of that stuff. What, give give American listeners a, a picture. Well, everything is different
0: there because everything is so small so everything is so crowded so there is really no equivalent in the united states of something which was 30 miles south of london 30 miles again to the channel so it's a two-hour trip from the center of london to the channel and we are halfway down in fact that's where the town started in the middle ages was as a sort of marketplace where people stopped off it was also a big hunting place oh, okay. and yeah and it goes back a very long way we you know one of our Proudest historical events is that we burned six Protestants at the stake in the High Street back in the 1550s. I, I, I
1: was I was about to say, and and you were you were raised as a Roman Catholic, which is also yes. uncommon for the South of England. Yes. So there were about you know twenty of us
0: who went on to celebrate the the, the, the burning of the Protestants. No, we didn't. We were, that church, of course, is their church now, and so we belong to a little little church, Our Lady and St Peter's, down in, in in the other part of town. I went to a Roman Catholic primary school elementary school you would call it and basically had an absolute love and my parents my mother worked well my mother was basically a home a homemaker but and she had some issues mental mental problems which which took took her in and out of various institutions during my childhood and adolescence my dad worked for an insurance Can company Can I just
2: stop you really quick what kind of mental problems
0: She was is bipolar and Borderline personality disorder. So we had two things to grapple with growing up. And so I, I you know, I, I kind of hunkered down a little bit. And also, the anyway, I don't have to go into all the details, but my, my, my parents' marriage was not the easiest, as you might imagine, with mental illness involved. So I kind of spent a lot of my childhood borrowed away and taking cover in some when,
1: respects. When were you first designated... By adults as a person of exceptional talents and gifts, that you should be doing something special or different or more. I remember very simply they gave us all IQ tests around
0: ten, and in those days they would use those tests to select you to either go to a a a magnet school, a sort of like a Stuyvesant kind of situation, or a regular comprehensive school. And I lived—it's so strange—but I lived in a slight pocket, little. It was, I was in a different county just for a few feet, basically, than many other people for some reason. And so I got to take it. It would have be been abolished elsewhere. So I was one of a handful of kids that took this. And I remember being my parents calling, being called into the headmaster. And I thought I'd done something wrong. And they said, well, we've just got these results back and we don't know what to do with your kid. We, we've obviously got to send him somewhere, <laughs> somewhere else. So I went to one of these magnet schools, which really was an amazing experience. In a local town, it was about, you know, maybe an hour and a half on the public bus every day and back. And I was lucky enough to do that and then get a scholarship and get to Oxford and then got a scholarship and got to Harvard.
1: So this is the, you are proof of concept of the meritocratic post-war British system, right? This This is what it was supposed to do, which was to identify people of promise outside of the aristocracy bring them forward and give them access to these institutions.
0: That was the idea. It was established by the labor government in the post-war period, then abolished by the labor government in, when I was there, because then the left became anti-meritocratic or rather thought that it was too elitist to separate people out by their merit. And so I had my political kind of awakening, watching the school I loved get shut down by a government. It it then, even though it was an incredible school, I mean, it got more kids into Oxford and Cambridge the year I got there than any other school in the country outside of the private school system. So it was a brilliant school. Even so, they decided to shut it down. Kind of staggering to me and really why I became a Tory. And anyway, it went independent rather than shut down and, and, and then
1: took fees from people to go to it. And and has been that way ever since. So a bookish um, a bookish lad from the Hundred Acre Wood arrives at Oxford, and is undergoing a political transformation of a kind, or a, an awakening, or whatever you want to call it. You, while you were at Oxford, you studied under some very notable scholars, and you became a, a used, I use I use this phrase with with dread you became an intellectual.
0: Well, I they, they, that's a very nice thing to. See. Way to put it. Uh, I did a lot. That's of, a
2: very mean way to put yeah, it. Say,
0: oh, I guess, yeah, yeah. Well, if you take the a... Paul Johnson view of intellectuals, I guess, you know, back then it was quite edgy to be quite conservative in the sense that we were, you know, thatcher Reagan era, we were pioneering reforms of the old order. And I was also president of the union there, which has recently been in the news a little bit. It, it's a big debating society. And then I did a lot of acting. I was in loads of plays at Oxford on the main house, main stage there, the Oxford Playhouse, and elsewhere. And so I had a blast. For two years, I wasn't really intellectual at all. I was a, I was a politician. I was an actor. I was running around doing all the things that Oxford should do. And it really was, it was just, that period was when, I don't know whether you know the show Brideshead Revisited that was done in the 80s. Yeah. That was when I arrived. So it was very much a the Bridesheadian mood when we got there early 80s thatcher Oakshire, reactionary chic you name it
1: yeah okay and what takes you from there to the news business well here's a good point good. so good question i'm
0: just trying to think accident really i wanted to sort of be a politician but i also had edited and written the, the school high school newspaper and uh, magazine rather and was involved a little bit at Oxford in journalism. And one of the people that came to speak at the union when I was there was the deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph. And I, he took a shine to me. And so the first summer I had after college, I went, he gave me a, an internship at the Daily Telegraph in the old, the old Telegraph building on Fleet Street. Back in the day, I, caught a, I just was the last person to really see this culture. It was in the old building that used to be the Beast, based in, 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 in Evelyn Waugh's Scoop. So it was completely laden with all this amazing- You'll note, you'll note
1: my screen name is William Boot, the oh, protagonist yes. in Scoop, for you, in your, in your honor. William Boot. footed through the pleshy fen. Did you not, did you, you had that before me coming on, right? I mean, no, I put you? that on for you. This is my did homage you? to you that well, Waugh could not have written you better, sir.
0: Well, this sweet, very sweet of you. And in fact, my editor back then was originally was the model for William Boot in real life. His name was William Deeds. And he was the editor of the International. He had been an early correspondent and war had roughly based part of his character on this guy. So he was now the editor. An incredibly funny, brilliant, smart, curious old guy who shirt his eshers
1: and show
0: uh, <laughs> Uh, Private Eye, which is the English satirical magazine, which makes fun of Fleet Street in a way, had this character who was the editor. And occasionally in pieces they would run, parody pieces, that have a little excerpt where the editor had, had, had chimed in with a little question. And one of the most common ones was his, Shuri Sham mistake. It was always pronounced S-H-U-R-E-L-Y, surely Sham mistake and you we know, actually sit back there and we would just go at it. It was well, amazing. They, we, we, people rolled up at 11 o'clock in the morning just for gin and tonics. Then they would go to lunch and the lunch would last two and a half hours. They'd come out of it. I was a little child, I could barely walk at the end of the lunch. <laughs> uh, they would slowly scoop me back into the office where we would then have an editorial meeting, <clears throat> which was also quite well lubricated, as I remember. That would finish around I'd, I'd, around five thirty or so, and then we'd have more drinks, and then we would write it. For we would have to write the editorial. It's an amazing hour. anything came out at all. Yeah, well, I remember I asked once the editor, the, the, the deputy editor, who, by the way, was also completely blind. I mean, seriously, edited a national paper without ability to see. He had an eye patch over one of his eyes, and he would dictate his editorials, <laughs> standing up, walking backwards and forth along the a line of his office. So he would, he would literally walk until he bumped into the fo- the wall, turn himself around and walk all the way back. And in fact, you could see on the wall a line of ash where his cigarette no. had cast this long Fabulous. line of his peregrination back and forth.
1: This is fair. Um, okay, so, what, so for an American audience, the Fleet Street Press was did not aspire to nonpartisanship. It didn't aspire to be coldly rationally objective. It was partisan lowercase p partisan and sometimes uppercase p partisan. But it was a brawling kind of competitive space, right? It's when there is the British accents are so sonorous that Americans give Brits too much credit in many occasions for erudition. The newspaper world that you met, the news business that you first encountered, was a cutthroat, hard charging kind of brawling business, right? Yes, as well as immensely profitable because they had
0: a sort of monopoly of advertising. I wouldn't say the news pages themselves were written by ideologues. There was a real division between the news and editorial. The paper was the Telegraph, also known as the Tory graph, so everyone knew where it was coming from. It was actually really well liked for its sports pages, which were really good and very thorough. But then, its you know, its editorial writers, its little clique, were really Thatcher's pioneers. So I was right in the middle of the. I was right in the cockpit for that revolution. I was also part of the. I wrote something for the Centre for Policy Studies, which was Thatcher's own little policy unit too. So I was very much sort of excited to be part of this intellectual political revolution as it was happening this was 1980 when was that 1984 so it was at right at the crux of, of going down in but then
1: you left then you came to america yes why well at oh,
2: what ahead. point at what point did you realize that journalism was something you wanted to do as a career you mentioned having this internship but when did that click for you
0: not then, actually, at all, because I thought I might be a politician. I thought I might go into parliament, and, and that was my goal. I was president of the union. Weirdly enough, and I've said this for another podcast, but it's true, at my high school, in that actual class I was at, sitting right next to me, literally the next desk, is, was Keir Starmer, who is currently the leader of the opposition in Britain, and probably the next prime minister. So I sat next to him for five years in in a classroom and we were renowned for constantly fighting. Like we did nothing. (laughs) We did nothing else but go at each other. He was on the left, I was on the right. We went at it for year after year after year. So I thought then I thought I was gonna be an actor, believe it or not, until I really spent a lot of time with actors. And (laughs) that was that cured me of that. Idea, there's just something incredibly irritating about actors in general. There are gems, of course, and some wonderful ones, but in general, to be sure, to be sure. Oh, so I decided not to do that. So I was kind of open minded. Then I got a scholarship to go to Harvard. And because it's one of those things you all, you know, if you were an aspiring young Brit, you would apply for those, like you apply for the roads. And I got it. And I didn't want to go actually until my mother told me, You're absolutely bloody crazy. Of course, you're going. You've got two years all paid for in the United States. What, what harm can possibly happen? And so I went. And then as soon as I got there, they almost literally as soon, within a few weeks, I was like, I'm done. This is it. This is home. This is where I've always been supposed to live. And it was a very clear, I wrote my folks, telling them, this may sound strange, but I feel like
1: I've come home. Why? What? What? What was it about Cambridge or... Boston or Massachusetts or America or whatever that that flipped that switch for you. You know, I sound like a cliche, but if you've never
0: if you've grown up in America and you're just used to it, it's one thing. But when you arrive here and you again, it was also back in the 80s. Britain was a very different place than it is now. The sense of possibility, the enthusiasm for people getting on with their lives and and making something of them, the the acceptance acceptability of ambition, the absence of any sort of frowning class disapproval of, of, of some lower class guy like me trying to make my way in the world, which was kind of endemic in the UK. And I just got the bug. It was a whole new continent. It was, you could do anything. And I think also, you know, I was, obviously I was partly, I was relieved to be away from my, my family, that, the, that my mother was... Once again, in 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 a hospital, blame me for it. It was just so a sad. it was just a really tough period, and I kind of realized at some point emotionally that I had to find some place that would be separate, and that was hard to do in England. I mean, my mom would show up in my dorm room to stay, and I didn't quite know what to do, and 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 she, you know tore my heart into a million different pieces. But that's what mental illness can do. And I think, so. if I'm being really honest, I felt for the first time I had a boundary that I could survive with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, A lot of guilt, a huge amount of guilt involved in that but i it was kind of survival it was either that or really go
1: under psychologically what so, kind uh, what kind of irish catholic would you be if you were not racked with guilt that would you would not you would not you you would not qualify if you did not so you're you're yeah racked with guilt and also blessed with self forgiveness yeah there you, <laughs>
0: uh but, you know the Irish, we all know we're all human, and, and I think there's that terrible guilt, but there's also a terrible compassion to the Irish, if you're, and, if you're, if you're lucky
1: to get on that side of it. Fighting and, and crying is my, my mother's Irish people, the McCarthys. They're fighting one minute at each other's throats and then all crying with each other and so sorry, 10 minutes later. Yes. Uh,
0: that's okay. why I kind of, I guess I find the to and fro of public debate and all that stuff I'm used to it. I'm used to the emotional drama of everything, and I don't take it quite as seriously as others do because I was kind of inoculated.
1: So, so take us from in in. Sorry, I'm taking a long time. No, no, this is this is what I want, and we'll, we'll we can talk about more current stuff later. But I think for a lot of our listeners are journalists, and a lot of our listeners are younger journalists, and many of the questions that I get and people have for me is. How do you become what you are? And the answer is through no plan, through no, there's no intentionality. You know, I, I have stumbled through and through the, the, through the good offices of Providence found a way to make a living in this business. But the haphazardness is a part of the appeal. Okay, so take us from a liberated Andrew arrives in Boston to continue intellectual academic life to being a newsman. Well, here's what happened, that the Oxford Union president had
0: invited Marty Peretz to come to speak at the Oxford Union, and Marty owned the New Republic, which at that point was really the preeminent, sort of fun, interesting magazine of its time. And so the that Oxford Union president wrote me, couldn't afford to call people back then across the Atlantic, and said, would you, would you give this, he's coming over, would you give him a briefing about what to expect of the Union? And... And he's coming to talk about Israel, wow! Or not. And so I went to have coffee with Marty Perrott to tell him what to expect. And I think he was a little taken aback when I said, you know, you're defending Israel. You will lose. <laughs> but here's how to lose really with a great deal of fun. And that was, I actually had a habit in the union of picking sides that I knew wouldn't win. Because I thought that was more interesting as a way to debate. So you picked a really difficult topic where you knew the crowd would be against you and see if you could find some traction with them. Um, and have so fun, I, as you I said. told him to go in and go down. You know, there's nothing wrong with you know, losing a debate if you win the argument. And so anyway, then he said, oh, you should be an intern, blah, 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 blah. And I, so I then got sequestered down to DC for a summer of internship at the New Republic back in
1: that time. And then I came back again and then they liked me a lot and I stayed on and blah, so blah, for, blah. So for listeners who are not familiar with what the New Republic was. The New Republic was, their tagline used to be the onboard reading of Air Force, the the onboard reading of In-Flight Magazine of Air Force One. Yeah. And it was the preeminent center-left magazine. It was, I think, and correct me, National Review at its peak was that for the right side of America, and the new republic was that for the center left which was interesting reported fact based opinionated but always interesting and everybody had to read it right when i was in college you had to read the new republic and you had to read the national review both you had you had to you had to do both of those things and the way that the new republic managed that was by being interesting and being contrary sometimes and being controversial sometimes and pushing against the left sometimes and doing all of that stuff. Talk about the magazine. It was heterodox. And it was at that point,
0: obviously, a Democratic Party magazine historically and had been run by commies basically in the 30s. had an interesting anti-war, Vietnam, but was then at that point, rethinking the left in the wake of Reagan was kind of the place where moderate and new Democrats trying to kind of forge a new politics of the center-left. That's where Clinton and Gore came from. It was also an aggressive, neoconservative force in foreign policy.
2: I was going to say it became pro-Iraq war.
0: Oh, it was very Speaking pro-Iraq war. Speaking of
2: heterodox. War.
0: It was, it was, it was, there was an editorial that nearly destroyed the magazine yes. in the 80s in, in, in support of the Contras, which back that time was an incredibly emotive event. So it was a kind of place where we were encouraged to write stuff that would ruffle feathers, that would that would that would take existing arguments and and turn them around. So that was the context in which I then was asked to write as I was a junior editor, a piece about gay marriage and what how we would deal with gay couples in the future. And and I remember just saying at that editorial meeting it was about domestic partnerships, well I don't see why we shouldn't have marriage what year was that when would that have been 89
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so, ahead of the curve ahead of the curve curve, for the democratic party yeah
0: it was and we made it the cover story you know the case for gay marriage the conservative case for gay marriage came out in 89 and uh, made me a little famous because it was such a crazy idea but that was the kind of magazine it was it was prepared to take subjects and give them a a real twist, in a, a, and, and it was Michael Kinsley was the editor back then. It was amazing, and Leon Wieseltier edited the back of the book. So it was, I mean, I, I can't tell you now say, what a privilege it was uh, to have worked there.
2: Based your mention of Wieseltier, it got me thinking. You know, both the old National Review, the old New Republic, the other thing they were. You know, we all come out of the world of politics, but. They had robust coverage of arts and culture that I think communicated to me as a kid that this isn't just about politics. You have to be, to be educated in politics also means to have an appreciation for novels, for theater, for all of these other things. And I do feel like as media has become so fractured, we've completely lost that. But that, to me, like, I just remember looking at these people who seemed like they had read everything and, and had real appreciation and, th- and that their appreciation for novels and books informed their understanding of politics.
1: You didn't see Breitbart's write-up of the Met season? I thought it was <laughs> I th- I, I thought I, it was a new take on the Der Zalberflute that I hadn't seen before. I thought it was great. <laughs> this is very highbrow. I mean, it really was. And it yeah. was unashamed
0: about it. And it didn't dumb things down for its readership. It expected that some of its readers actually would not understand some of the pieces it was running. I was one of those editors who were like, do you think we could make this a little bit more explicable when I was editing the back of the book? And Leon would say, nah, nah. It made people feel better when they, they're at a party. They don't quite understand what's going on. It, made, it gives them it a sense of, of, of wanting to belong. And, and I was
1: like, all right. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about Kinsley, if you will. I think oh. that for young, for younger generations, the the miracle and magic of Kinsley and what he meant in Washington politics and and the national conversation. He was just
0: he is a wonderful person. Really, super smart. Absolutely no cant at all. Would tell say things like to me. I remember him saying. Write this now, because you won't have the balls to write it in 10 years' time.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so he crucified a lot of our careers early. I remember there was one piece I wouldn't write for him, which I won't go into, which which would have been fun, but I was like, no, I'm not going I'm not going to make myself go through that. But he sent me I did all and and it was funny. It was always with a, a wry touch. He was very influenced by English journalism actually, which is why he kind of we got along, like we would spend every Wednesday afternoon. Together in the editor's office, just coming up with puns for the headlines. That was all we did for an hour. This is my dream. This
1: is all. If if I could have one job in life, that you have just described, the perfect job.
0: Kinsley would invite you in and say, "Okay, okay," <laughs> and we would <laughs> we would just bat <back, laughs> puns back and forward for an hour. He thought I was English, and I would get it, and we did. And so every headline was fun. Every headline was funny. Everything was was was. It was a little goofy, and it was a glorious place. And then for them to then ask me to take it on as the editor. How old were you? I was 26. 26. But really young. 26. I was that young. This was not a startup. This was an incredible institution that had, was at its peak. How could I? I, I mean, all I could do was fuck up, basically, is all I could see. On the other hand, I was... For the owner, I think I sold a couple of problems. I was more intellectually right-wing than the rest, and so I was prepared to run stuff they wouldn't, and he liked that. And he had, you know, there were lots of fights and in internal politics there that, that I was sort of, the, I think, the, the least worst option for him. And anyway, I did it for five years. It was a, it was
1: an exhausting, energizing, and educative experience. And so you were a what? You were wonderkind. You were this the, this phenom, you've got this guy, and he's all of this stuff. you do it for five years. Why do you stop doing it? Well, I got sick is one answer i
0: as as I'm as a gay man is heading into my late twenties, early thirties, everyone around me begins to die, and this is the AIDS epidemic obviously and and my best friend died, and my I don't know, four four men i dated died and in their 20s and 30s so this was and horrible deaths just you, you you really hard to explain the medieval tortures of what aids did to a human body and and so that was going on i zero converted halfway through my time at the new republic at that point it was a death sentence so i and in fact, I didn't get sick in the sense that I didn't get. But once the new medications came online in around 96, and I was on about 38 pills a day of experimental drugs that were incredibly toxic, I could not really function very much anymore. And I had to lie down. And I nearly fell over. There was a bunch of stuff that made me realize I, can't, I just can't do this anymore. And also five years at the New Republic was kind of long, actually. Most editors given the internal politics, the way it all fought over, the way it was all set up so that nobody had final answers on it, everything. And and uh, I pissed off people there through the whole curve controversy, where I, I published a symposium about that book, which was highly controversial. I published something that kind of torpedoed Hillary's healthcare plan, which also pissed people off. I did a lot of gay stuff, which rather irritated people. And I did a bunch of stuff that I thought was part of, the goal of making the New Republic part of the conversation and, but, you know, other people had different ideas, so ideas is
1: fine. I think, and, I think the um, bell curve, could, just to pause there, I think the bell curve is a perfect example of what you have epitomized in your career. So Charles Murray's book was, was lowercase b blacklisted. This, this, this work was supposed to be excused from the discussion dealing with IQ, the heritability of IQ and race. And class and, and class. And this was like this was supposed to be unperson and you put on your hip waiters and say, OK, let's go to the center left magazine and let's take it seriously. Right. Let's let's talk about this. Let's have detractors. Let's have proponents. Let's hear it out.
2: Charles Murray came to Yale when I was an undergraduate and I want to hear him. And I think the, re- the reaction he got there epitomized like what. The reaction to him was in elite, polite society where a student got up and said, I don't think I understand. The argument in your book is that 50 percent of people, how can you possibly say that 50 percent of people are below average intelligence, <laughs> With com- total outrage, <laughs> total outrage? How can you say um, that? How can you be um, so it was like, be, We cannot talk about this. Yeah.
0: Well. My instinct, and this is you could see from the union when I was picking the wrong side to debate, I, I I really do have a very deep belief that you can talk about anything and that anyone can talk about anything. Period. And that means that what matters is how persuasive you are, whether the arguments are convincing, whether you have evidence to support them. And if you can conduct that debate without incivility or crudeness or ad hominems, then I genuinely don't see the problem. If this is, as I argued, so self-evidently fallacious, then let us expose it, that hiding things gives them actually some luster of forbidden thought. And in fact, some of the data here is not that controversial, actually. The American Psychiatric Association, two years later, was asked to produce a report and they said, no, the data in this book are totally defensible. And... But so we had, I think it was 16 or 17 critiques of the, of the extract in the same issue of the magazine, which I thought was fair enough. And, but it turned out that simply legitimizing in any way this debate was not really allowed. And it was a really tough time. And, you know, in retrospect, I probably put that magazine through too much stress and I think if I'd been older, as Kinsley said, I wouldn't have had the balls to do it. But the fact that I was I was just mm-hmm. looking at this text. I read the book twice in advance. I was so concerned that I didn't get it wrong. And I asked all the questions I thought I had to ask and fact checked it to death. And and I, I I, you know, but obviously then literally it was you, it was it was the New York magazine used it as a reason for firing me in 2020, which is, you know, 20, well, how long that was? You know, 25 years later, it was still being used as a reason it was, it was, it's, it's, it's there.
2: Treating it as a subject worthy of debate.
0: It's no, just I, I had shown that I was a white supremacist racist by running mm, it right. at all. And therefore was permanently, I mean, Ta-Nehisi made this it,
1: that I should not be published again, ever, anywhere. That, that was the rotten, he, That rotten hotbed of white supremacy in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where you reside, everywhere you go, it's all Klan rallies. I just, you can't you can't get through for the sheets. But they are fashionable sheets. They are designer It is me under here, wear. under
0: yeah, the hood, actually, because you can't it. see it. But that is me, Clayton <laughs> Bixby, classic oh, uh, Dave funny, Chappelle character. Yeah, I know. The funniest know.
1: skit in all history. One of the best. Okay, so let's... So you, Sorry, I'm, you I'm no you no out. you broke the New Republic a little bit, but the New York, but the New Republic broke you a little bit. I think that's probably true. Although,
0: to be honest, you know, so much else was going on there. I mean, you yeah. I really did think I had a few more years to live, and and I I watched people I loved very passionately die in front of me. So it's hard to explain what it's like to have gone through that as you're in a place where none of this is happening to anybody else.
1: Yeah yeah yeah. It so was, what did you was, what did you do with this with this change in you? What did what what did this affect in you?
0: I I wrote a book called Virtually Normal. I took a summer to write it because I thought that'd be it. That would be the last thing I did, which was the argument for marriage equality and and I kind of thought that would be it. And then I quit and then I came up here to Provincetown actually to kind of recuperate and I did some writing for the New York Times Magazine, Adam Moss, and then I started campaigning on marriage equality, produced an anthology on marriage equality. Then I also produced a memoir of my time during AIDS and and a meditation on the nature of friendship. And then in 2000, I decided I should probably do something online. So I got a friend of mine to set up a, a, a website for all my pieces, and then we then incorporated this brand new technology called blogger which now enabled me to update it during the day and that started in the for the gore bush campaign of 2000 it was me and matt drudge i remember that night going back and forth basically one of the two online news places back in the day that's how rinky dink it was back then and and then I just l- leapt into the online world and started building this, this blog, which, was, which took off after 9-11
1: and then with the Iraq war and then with Obama. And the Daily Dish was, and I, I don't know, Eliana, what your experience was, but when I was, so this is when I'm starting as a, as a, as a journalist, I started in 98 as a full-time newspaper man and by, certainly by, by, as you say, after 9-11, mm-hmm. for people, it became, as Drudge was a required reading, you were required reading, National Reviews, The Corner was required reading, and there were a couple of other places. But what was really exciting about that period of time was there was the kind of interplay of ideas and discussion that the forefathers of the internet had sort of promised us, right? Like it seemed to be happening, right? In the comment section, you would post something, and then there would be these furious debates in the comment section, or the corner would post something, and oh, it would go back and forth, and there'd be left voices and right voices. But as it turns out, it's just because there were so few options online that there were diverse audiences because you couldn't tailor make your informational experience and you had to go to a right wing source. If you were a left winger, you had to go to a right wing source. If you were a left winger, you had to go to these places. Talk about the change. Well, before you talk about the change, just briefly talk about those halcyon early days about what the conversation was like and what it portended to you about, like, this must have been very freeing. You've been through this long journey. You've been through this difficult period. You've won a lot of acclaim for your books. Your book on friendship is, I recommend to all, it is a great it is a great book that I read 20 years ago, but you go through this long period and then you find yourself in a happy, you're, ba- you're back in the hundred acre wood of the internet.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we were entranced by things like hyperlinks. You know, for the first time we could write something about someone else's argument and link to it. So that someone could read the thing you're criticizing as you criticize it. what What more could you want? And the idea is that we would we would actually engage as many different points of view as possible, because in part because we wanted to have a really good debate. But secondly, because the more people you link to, the more people link to you. It was this virtuous cycle in which we all started expanding who could link to what, who could read what, who could debate what. And, and, and also it wasn't quite so frenetic so that you know, it'd be once or twice a day, not once every 20 minutes. And that's what eventually, as I took the dish then to a variety of other media entities, Time, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, that was, it grew and grew and grew and the speed with which the stuff was being delivered increased as we found that people would actually get quite addicted to the stuff if you get, if you get spooning it to them every Fresh link. Minutes. Here's so a fresh our, link. Yeah, new, new URLs, please. So I started to add staffers, under underbloggers, we used to call them interns, and they would come up with new material. I used to send them out like leafcutter ants into the internet to find little bits and bobs and bring them back. And then we'd repackage them and spin them and send them out. So it was kind of Twitter before Twitter in some ways, but with an intelligence behind it, with, with, a, with, a, with a, a single person's vision
1: behind it in a way. For, for listeners who do not remember this time, <laughs> Time magazine, The Atlantic, were big established media. The, the, the size of young people cannot imagine a few things about what life was like in the before time. One, as I always say, people smoked so much. The number of cigarettes consumed per capita in America, no one would believe. Number one. Number two, Time Magazine was enormous, right? It was in every doctor's office, in every middle class home. It was was this universal thing. As it was being eaten alive by the internet, outlets like these are looking for you, right? They're looking for how do we buy this, right? This thing is happening that's destroying our business model can we purchase something that will give us that? But the, the graft-on didn't work, right? The, the ability to fuse the organic energy that was happening in the internet, the, the internet 2.0, didn't, was not able to be successfully grafted onto the legacy print media. Not just in your case, or maybe not at all in your case, but generally speaking, the responses from the industry failed.
0: I think, yeah, maybe that's a little harsh, but not entirely untrue. And and the weird thing was that these big behemoths were actually online puny. So that when I went to the Atlantic in 2006, I I personally tripled their entire traffic. So I was almost three quarters of their traffic for the first few months. Now that's, I don't know how you integrate that. Eventually they just ignored me. (laughs) <laughs> which pissed me off and and then moved on to other people but i gave them that kind of booster into the they they were able to get to a point where they could get num, real numbers which made enable them to get advertising back in those days when advertising was a, a possibility by the time i got to the daily beast the advertising was just not there online at all they couldn't find it and that's when i went in 2014 took my blog outside of the mainstream media and added a paywall. So we were the first real news institution to actually put That in was 2014?
1: In. Yeah. That's when the paywall came in. Wow. That is, I, I would have thought it was much more recent than that no. because- No, we
0: were, we were pioneers. We started in 2014, 2015, and we brought in a million dollars in that year.
1: That's amazing. In 2015 at The Dish. The, the, the lazy way that it often gets shorthanded is that the news business failed to charge for its content soon enough. Is that a fair criticism? Yeah, because they
0: kept thinking advertising would save them and because it always had. That was their whole thing. They, they couldn't contemplate subscriptions. No one was paying for anything online forever. Someone had to. Take the plunge. Someone had to say no, and Murdoch actually was one of the few who really did that from the get-go. Actually, he he was With the smart journal. in that sense. But in the short term, he lost. You know, his papers lost real readership. We we sort of went for it in 2015, and it was successful for a year. But at that by that point, again, the workload was so unbelievable. I mean, I, it's very hard also to, to tell people this, but I was working. You know, twelve to fourteen hours a day. I had other people. It was something new was going up every twenty minutes. I didn't reckon really with the toll that would take on my mental and physical health, and and, and the, it started breaking down. I mean, I started getting sicker and sicker. My doctors, you know, said actually the way, the way he put it to me was like. I don't think you survived AIDS to die of blocking. So why don't you <laughs> why don't you take a break? So then I took a break. I took a whole year. I went on a retreat. I I I I spent time with literally I spent time with my family, whom i would mm-hmm. barely seen forever, and my friends, and gradually went back into design. I wanted to kinda of go right about religion, really, which is another passion of mine. And but then Trump emerged and I wrote a piece for New York magazine called America's Never Been So Ripe for Tyranny and boom, we were back. And then I wrote a I wrote essays for New York magazine and then when he was elected agreed to write a, a weekly column that was then that carried on for four years until 2020 when they got rid of me because I was not down with BLM
1: and not down. They,
2: they with remembered you this. convened the, a symposium you were, on Charles. You, they, they,
1: they were um, reminded of your white nationalism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're,
2: Andrew, one of the ahead. things I, I wanted to ask you is you've worked in a bunch of the most storied journalistic institutions in the country, whether it's the Atlantic or the New Republic or New York Magazine. And you've also been hung out your own shingle in the form of a podcast and a substack or a blogger, what do you think are the benefits of being inside an institution versus forging out on your own and of doing so as a fully formed journalist versus as doing so at a young age?
0: Yeah, the latter thing was the real problem because I had a career, a pretty well-established career in the mainstream. And most people that were blogging were not that. They were either starting up or they were outsiders. And so inevitably, that would create some tensions between you and your peers. And so that not easy. I, won't, I, I That wasn't easy. A lot of people didn't like it, were jealous or angry or pissed off. And I, it's not like I didn't do enough, didn't do things that, were, that could genuinely merit opposition or criticism. But that I think being one of the pioneers on this stuff while having one foot still in the old guard was kind of a little just uncomfortable for lots of people and and then also i think you just retain this belief that i can write whatever i want and slowly over the time at new york mag as as wokeness kind of crept in it became clear they didn't want that really at least the critical mass didn't want that mainly of younger the idea of this old dude just saying what he thinks every week was, well, at one point they complained that it would create a hostile working environment for for them to actually enter the offices because my columns were so poisoning the atmosphere that they felt oppressed. Now, the editor happily sort of said, don't be so silly, but you can only do that so often before the pressure gets really intense. And to be honest, I was quite happy to go, because, partly because I hated what I was doing to my editors. I mean, they were being, every week, they were being put through this unbelievable process of cross-questioning and, and, and criticism and anger and rage and protest. And I'm like, this isn't how it should be. And then the fact-checking started to begin, become so relentless and so hostile that you just gave up. you know, <laughs> And... Anyway, it was not fun. I'm upset about it in retrospect. But actually what happened was that I then was able, i have been talking to the Substack people for quite a while before that actually. And I'd always kind of felt like I gave up this blog and I never really put it back together again. And it feels like I wish I could somehow. My career seemed weird that I built this thing for 20 years and then left it, you know, hanging there. And so subset gave me a chance to go back and maybe reinvent it as a weekly thing, the weekly dish, and, and I was able to do it seamlessly and then went independent literally the following week and bingo, salary tripled overnight, which shows you the economics of the two places and total freedom. And so I haven't really looked back and I have to say it was a big surprise that we did so well and I'm still kind of pinching myself that it's going this well and I can do what I like. But it, it's sort of what I've been trying to do my whole career. And it's as if the economics, the culture, technology, and all these other things that were at play all through the last 30 years have kind of settled into this possible conclusion. I mean, I had a conclusion. I mean I now feel ancient. I mean I was always the wunderkind but and I've, so it's hard for me to think of myself as an, you know, an elder statesman, as it were. But, yes, uh, the I, <laughs> yes, the presbos. Yes, the great, the gray beard. But, and I'll be honest with you, Chris. I don't feel like that at all. I still feel the same way I felt 20 years ago. I don't. I don't really. This is not my thing. But you know, I'll. I'll. I guess I have to reconcile myself to it. Your
1: Your Your career has been predicated on a willingness to say what you think and tell the truth even when it is unpopular, even when it makes your readers unhappy. And I noticed there is a rhythm to the story of Andrew Sullivan. And I've heard you talk about, as a devoted DishCast listener, I, I have heard you talk about so the story of you in the Iraq War <clears throat> and that you as a proponent of the Iraq invasion and all of this traffic flowed to you. All of these people came to you and you were there. And I remember the moment and you were marshalling these tremendous arguments. You were, if if they would have had you at the UN instead of Colin Powell, they would have done a lot better. And you made these really good arguments. And then when you changed your mind, when the circumstances revealed the real, the real situation and you understood it differently and you changed your mind. You paid a terrible price in readership, right? All of these people who had come to you for the hawkish point of view, when you changed, people were furious at you and your traffic declined. And then, I, and then I watched you become, when you talked about a nation ripe for authoritarianism and all of those things, that a new group of people run to your side and say, this guy, he gets it. He understands. He is one of us. And then when you said, I don't know, maybe having surgical responses or medical responses to young people who are questioning their sexual or their gender is maybe a little weird. I don't know if we want to do that. And people said, who is this guy? I thought he was one of us. So there's, there's a, a rhythm in your career of you become the Doyenne of a new group of people who say, have you heard about Andrew Sullivan? This guy is fantastic. You've got to read him. And then a bunch of like-minded people gather around your banner. And then when you are true to who you are, which is a person who is willing to be persuaded, a person who changes his mind, a person who is willing to ask difficult questions, they say, who is this guy? I thought he was one of us.
0: Yeah, I I think of it as purging my readership. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I lost about two-thirds of my readership when I changed my mind on Iraq. And yes, and then I shocked people the fact that I was very anti-Trump, but I was not pro-left social justice. I'd, I'd, I'd followed that for a long time, and I knew what that was about, and I didn't agree with it. <laughs> it's a very basic, different philosophical view of the whole world, the way it works. So yeah, <laughs> they get whiplash. It, I feel like after about 25 years... The people that are still hanging in there are probably aware now that they're not going to get everything they like every week. The only thing that, the only way I can do that, because I'm not really good at pretending to believe things I don't believe. It just, it doesn't come naturally to me, is I, have always had a very strong policy of airing dissents within the old dish and the new dish so that, and I get someone else to edit that for me, to present me with the strongest alternative viewpoints so that even if i even if you remain hostile to what i'm saying or unpersuaded you'll see that i'm not in contempt of other arguments in other words that 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 they deserve airing and sometimes i don't have a good response which tells me something i mean my general view is i don't care what people say about me as long as it isn't true <laughs>
1: I'm, oh, I'm going to use that a lot. I can tell yeah. you right now that I'm going to use that a lot.
0: Well, you know, that's okay. It, it's, you know, cause it can't hurt me. It's not true. If they say something that's true, I need to hear it. I need to figure out where I went wrong. And, you know, philosophically, I just, I just believe that we're humans. We're fallible. We get things wrong all the time. And, That's the root of my political philosophy, conservatism of doubt, that that you, in fact, you disperse power as widely as possible so that you minimize error and you minimize hubris and you make change that's necessary, but based on pragmatic bottom-up shifts that need to be accommodated, not because you have some new vision of justice, capital J, that you're going to impose on everyone overnight to make the world a better place. That's- That's (laughs) that's, my, my, <laughs> that's where conservatism comes and that's what the conservative saw that book that I wrote is really attempting to argue that conservatism at its core is a belief in the fallibility of human nature and the fallibility of human reason. And, and, and we have to construct politics that can mitigate the worst impulses of those two very profound human temptations. The, Burkean, the o, Burke, Burke times Oakeshott equals. Yeah, we didn't talk yeah. that I wrote a dissertation for Michael Oakshot all those years ago. Which, which, and that was also, I think, trying to figure out what I believed about the world was really helpful to come to another country, to, take, to go to a, a, a department of government at Harvard among the best minds and really force myself to read everything smart that these professors thought I should read and come to some kind of provisional conclusion about the world that was not simply what I had grown up with and my prejudices. And that, that was really the process that I, I was...
1: Through. Eliana and I were talking about this before we started recording. Your interviews on your podcast, particularly we're talking about with Sora Bamari, but also most recently with Patrick Deneen from Notre Dame. And there are people with whom you disagree, but as I told Eliana... I came out of listening to Patrick Deneen's interview. You interviewed him in such a way that I felt strongly about the areas in which I agreed with him and that he had a point that I had been too dismissive of in the past. I heard him better than I had ever heard him before. You brought that part of it out, but did not require that I take take the medicine whole, right? Did not require like, okay, well, if you're right about the the perils of a meritocracy that is of a intersectional meritocracy right that that this is that this is a problem like oh i'd never heard about it that way but you didn't then have to take it all as one dose and you you really do manage to practice what you preach you do manage i I, i'm not ever going to be a vegan delicious meat is if 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 God did not want us to eat meat, he would not have made animals this delicious. There's just there's there's no way that it tastes this good that we're not supposed to eat it. It's like sex feels good because procreation is important. So then animals must be delicious for some for some. There must be a powerful biological connection. But I listened to you have a respectful, funny, interesting conversation on veganism that made me like the person more and made me hear what he was saying more. So we I I just admire the heck out of what you do. Oh, that's
0: very sweet of you. I think that in some ways it was good for me because I think you when you're just a writer and you're in your you're alone all the time and you're banging out, whatever, you can give off an impression of absolute certainty or of rigidity and even of hostility that isn't true actually, that is just a kind of an inevitable part of this the certainty and surety that a column should have. I mean, it should have a point of view. You shouldn't be, shouldn't finish a column wondering what the hell did you think about that? I can't remember. Not that there are plenty of columns around that don't do that. Never take you anywhere. But the podcast requires you to engage with another human being, you know, face to face. And that's why I always do it with a, a video. Even if you can't see it, because I don't want other people to see me because I look like hell half the time. And and, and so, so that, I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been the big surprise to me, and in fact, it's 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 increasingly the most popular part of the the whole package. I think because people, well, I'm not going to bull. I'm not. I hope I don't bullshit. In as much as I don't, if someone says something I really don't agree with, I really try and push back on it. But on the other hand, nor do I want to be rude or disrespectful. And so, I think there's a there's a place for that, and I think. You know, I was constantly talking about the need for liberal democracy, this quote, liberal democracy, which means accepting the validity of the point of view of the other person and coming to some sort of... And I was writing that all the time, and I'm like, well, how do I I practice that? How do you actually... Because it's actually... Liberal democracy is an activity, and it requires a certain temperament. It requires a certain kind of civilization and culture to sustain it, which is why someone like Trump is, in my view so destructive to that culture and so destructive to this, this this way of life and i wasn't showing i wasn't doing i wasn't showing that well enough i was telling i wasn't showing and the podcast was a way of, of with any luck showing you've really chipped me up by the way i get very i get down you know i get down on myself i get down on the world i've been really gloomy lately and this is, you've really helped me see a little, just by forcing me out of my rut, you know, and talking about this and thinking about the whole thing again,
1: oh, it's not so bad, I guess. For a, for lo, For lots of us, we're looking for people of goodwill who may disagree on lots of things, but who want to enter into a conversation that's rooted in goodwill and fundamental humanity. And you have paid a price in your career. You have been willing to pay a price to do those things. And that's a, that, you know, Eliana will hit the kill switch as I start to say this, but the, I, I'm, I'm really the, the pastor at my church told the story and I lived in my brain about the, one of the founders of KKR quitting at the peak as, as the private equity business was just taking off in the late eighties and he quit, he shocked the world and he quit. And when he explained why he said an ethic without sacrifice is no ethic. And you pay a. You have been willing.
2: An idiot, Chris. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have been willing to pay a price. You have been willing to pay a price to do the things that you think are right, and even when that includes granting the humanity and decency of people who people around you say that you should cast out into the wilderness. So I dig it.
0: That's that's sweet of you. I I wish it were a function of my virtue. I think it's a function of my personality. I and and so I don't want to claim any sort of moral. I just. I just enjoy debate too much. I enjoy ideas too much to want to banish half of them from the world. That's why I'm not interested in banning critical race theory or critical queer theory, even though I find them pretty contemptible intellectually. I want them exposed. I want them put up against alternative, better ideas of the way the world is. And I think that's the, lib- the, the small L liberal way forward. And I, I, in a complicated world, a conservative, it seems to me, in, in the modern world, is really a small C defender of liberalism, mm-hmm. small L again, mm-hmm. which is the least worst arrangement for living together with radically different views of the world. And we can't undo the radically different views of the world. In general, it was a bit of a myth that there, ever, there were, was there a time when humans didn't have Less so than now because we're more exposed to so many different things. But there's a moral quality to liberalism which I think is related to Christianity, to be honest with you, which is about the inherent individual worth of of individual human souls and that cannot be obliterated by the collective or by ideology or by capital T truth. And that may not mean that we live in a a society with one single meaning that uplifts us all in the same direction with the same religion and the same symbols, which, you know, is in some ways a visionary, a beautiful utopian idea, but it's not coming back. It disappeared four or 500 years ago for very good reasons. Back with my, you know, we were burning people at the stake in my little town. (laughs) Seems that, you know, small towns have better things to do than burn fellow citizens of theirs in the high street. And so it's there for a reason. And I think it needs correcting. I think it needs adjusting. I think it needs crit- criticizing, but I don't believe it needs abolishing. And that I think where I disagree with both the, the sort of Trumpian right and the woke left on that. I don't. And I
1: think we will regret it. And we are regretting it already as we get rid of it. Andrew, we are so grateful that you made this time for us today. And unless Eliana has any, do you have any final questions for Andrew before we release him back into the wilds of, of the of Cape Cod?
2: I don't. I don't. The
1: dune grass beckons.
0: Oh. <laughs> Actually, the dog is the dog beckons. Um. Oh
1: yeah, that's the last thing I should say. One of the other points of commonality. I'm a beagle person. Oh man, and, and you being beagle forward uh, always told me. That whether you were cranky or irascible or whatever else you were on a particular day, you were a person who understood, understood that it was good to be adopted by beagles as part of their pack.
0: And you know what? My,
1: the reason I have beagles,
0: and I, I do love them as beagles now, is that my best friend had a beagle who died of AIDS in, in 1995. And I got my first beagle to keep his memory alive around me. Him. And Uh, and so part of him is still here. That's um, awesome. Frolicking around in the doing grass.
1: That's (laughs) the way it ought to be. Thank you, Andrew. You bet.
2: Thank you so much. You bet. And that is all the time we have in this interview episode. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been inkstained wretches from Nebulous media produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. just search for wretches.